Good morning, folks. Today I'm going to talk about something very near and dear to my heart, which is simple enhancements that you can do to make your sex life much better. Now, there are lots of things that impede if we take the Socratic approach, the formation and natural instigation of exceptional sex. One of those things, as you've probably heard many people talk and or harangue you about, is the importance of communication. Now, one of the things I think is really disingenuous when people talk about communication, particularly in the modern feminine sense of a word, is that they subtly or directly imply that it's verbal in nature, i.e. in order to have good sex, it is true that you do have to talk about things that you do in bed. It's not always the most important part of it. There's a lot of nonverbal aspects that come into sex, particularly in the primal aspects or the more physically energetic styles of sex that are just as important, if not more so. One of the other things I often find very disingenuous and deliberately manipulative is this feminist emphasis on verbal communication to the exclusion of everything else, because it's a realm in which women naturally excel. Men often go into it unprepared. There's that phrase, it's 70% of communication is nonverbal. It's, you know, it's not entirely correct, but I do feel like there would be a better better communication if there was more emphasis placed on not just the words, but more the actions, the implications, and the templates and frameworks that are used. So one of the things I endeavor to do in all of my work is to simplify and make accessible a lot of the very complex material that, you know, tantra experts and psychologists have dug deeply into, and to make it more applicable to everyone's lives. So, enough waffling on. Here are the actual two phrases, and then I'll explain in more detail why these work so well. So the two phrases are more and you're so good at that. Now, more is a simple and extremely effective replacement for the word yes. One of the things you'll often hear people in kink talk about is the idea of traffic lights as safe words. And then, you know, red became, no, we have to stop. And yellow became, I'm getting close to my limits. And then some genius thought, well, I guess green should mean, you know, I'd have to laugh at this because I don't think I've ever heard more than a handful of people out of hundreds of possible occurrences genuinely and enthusiastically use the word green in a scene. I mean, there are obviously lots of people that are aware of it that choose not to use it, but I have to also wonder why that is. And my suspicion is that the, the, the color green doesn't necessarily have any particularly strong positive associations for most people. Most people don't think arousal, sex, green. They think arousal, sex, pink, or white, or redheads, or, you know. 
Uh, or if you're really into nature and forest visualizations, I guess over time that association could form to a weak level. But what typically happens with green is it feels artificial and forced. It feels like it's supposed to be a code word for something that it doesn't actually communicate very well. And more is superior on a number of different levels. One, it is an exhortation. It is, I like this, give me more. It is also a very simple, non-specific way to ask your partner for something. If what you're struggling with is asking your partner for things, and we'll talk about that in just a second, one of the things that is often difficult for some people is verbalizing their specific desires. More takes all of the specificity out of it. More is actually an extremely effective reinforcer. So, like a click, but a verbal one which of course has the advantage of not requiring that you carry a physical clicker with you at all times. Although if you have a little sex kit like I do and a little training kit like I do, then that's not usually a problem for you. But sometimes you might be caught without your tools and you have to improvise, but you always have your mind, your creativity, and your voice. And in those circumstances, the word more functions as an extremely effective reinforcer especially when it's combined with specific timing. So someone does something that you like and you instantly reply more rather than waiting a couple of seconds so that the association is weakened. If someone starts eating you out, you know, what's, what's going to tell them that you enjoy this better? You know, you mildly groaning, waiting 30 seconds and then saying more, or you immediately responding with deep enthusiasm, heartfelt gratitude and overwhelming desire you know, mewling the word more at them a few times so they get the message. Uh, once they've made that association that more equals good, and that usually doesn't take very long, uh, then you can narrow it down to one use of the word for every specific, t you know, basically follow the same rules for shaping that you would normally follow. Uh, so more is very effective. It's far superior in every aspect to the word green. Uh, mostly because it's both simple to express, non-specific, although obviously you can say more of that or more of this, but just the word more is a good place to start. And because you're going to have to memorize all of this stuff, because obviously you can't take a cheat sheet into the bedroom with well, actually, no. You can always take a cheat sheet into the bedroom with you. I always used to plan out the sex I would have. I know one girl that found that particular, actually multiple girls that found that particularly attractive, that I would go into a training session with a clearly defined outline of the several various steps the session would contain. But more. Just remember the word more. Everything they do that you like, more. It also reinforces success. And this is one of the things I touch on in the Designing Better Reinforcers podcast episode. Success is inherently self-reinforcing. If someone feels like they're doing well, they're very likely to keep doing well. And feeling successful at something is a tremendous boost to someone's self-esteem. It really is one of the kindest things that you can do for someone, especially in bed if they're feeling a little shy, is to help guide and reassure them by not directly encouraging them so much, by saying something like, uh, you know, here's a sentence that runs directly contrary to your own perception of your self-esteem and your self-concept. Like, if a girl is terrible at giving oral and 
you describe to her out loud in scientific logical detail why you enjoy her sucking your dick, that's going to bounce right up against her self-concept, which you know includes the idea that she's not very good at it and most likely cause some level of cognitive dissonance or uh, friction. Don't necessarily have to do that. The better way to do it is to just ask for more of that thing. Because if no one really ever asks for something, for more of something, if it's not enjoyable. So all of that information is contained within the phrase. It it subcommunicates so much, as well as being a simple shortcut and training wheels for people that have difficulty, particularly women, but also very often men, uh, verbalizing their uh, their needs, wants, desires, fantasies. So use the word more whenever you want to, as often as you like. It creates a perception in your partner that they are succeeding that they are doing it well, they are pleasing you. And I've found that even the most dominant of men, in my experience, derive deep satisfaction, if only occasionally, from knowing that they are capable, even if they choose not to, of intensely satisfying and pleasing their partner. Submissive women or submissive men, I suppose, obviously have a, a greater emphasis on being good at something, being needed at something. It kind of ties back to the three primary motivations for for submissives, uh, devotional, transactional, and positional. Devotional being, I do this for you because I love you, and because I love you, I do this for you. Transactional being, I do this because you will do something for me in return, and that's why I'm doing this as an exchange. And positional as a sense of I'm doing this because it's known by myself or others to be difficult or require great skill. And positional, I've often found, is very much like training Olympic athletes. You know, there's this obsession with doing it right, even if people aren't watching. The fame is, is definitely a motivator to some extent, but it's about getting it right, knowing that you're doing a difficult thing very well, and feeling like a success, feeling good at it. Although obviously that comes in a lot with devotional as well. And I've never found a submissive that is purely, really purely one or the other. There's usually a great capacity within every every submissive to to excel in each one of those three primary motivations for their submissive behavior. At the end of the day, we do genuinely want our partners to feel like they're successful in bed. Now, this is where I part ways with many of my compatriots uh, that are a bit more feminist-leaning, who advocate things like faking orgasms or lying about enjoying certain things. And it's not so much that they need to... You know, it's lying is inherently damaging, particularly in bed in moments of emotional and sexual vulnerability. You don't have to enjoy everything that your partner is into, but what most people really want is to feel heard, to feel seen, to feel like they aren't a freak or weird or broken for wanting the things that they want. And this always comes back to my very powerful rationalization for this, which is that you can think about and enjoy thinking about any activity of any kind. It may not always be the best idea to actualize that in reality. 
So if it's illegal, I could obviously never tell you to do anything illegal, blah, blah, blah. If it's something that you would consider immoral or dangerous to put yourself into the circumstances of doing, you know. Um, I know a lot of girls that have fantasies about being viciously raped in dark alleyways. And of course, the fantasy of that might be better than the reality. You know, several strangers, you might get beaten to death. You know, some of them might have STIs. There's a lot of potential downsides for that. So the fantasy is good. The fantasy, this is, okay. The fantasy is not good or bad. The fantasy is what it is. I work very hard in myself and in encouraging other people not to ascribe a moral judgment to the sexual thoughts they have. As Henry Ford once said, nothing is either good nor bad, but thinking makes it so. As soon as we think about our thoughts. We pass judgment on them through a moral a moral framework, and they become either good or bad. And this was a conversation I was having with someone recently about the Garden of Eden and how the story goes that Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And afterwards they covered themselves and they saw that they were embarrassed. And essentially the conversation was around you know, up until that point, nothing they did was either good or evil. And it also relates a lot to uh, Nietzsche's view on society and morality as being descended from uh, natural law. So more is a superior phrase. Uh, so moving on, you're so good at that obviously taps into the same desire to feel successful at something. Uh, it's also convincing enough and non-specific enough that someone can accept it, even while they might feel like they're not that good at something. You know, I've found this to be a useful shortcut in getting people to accept that they are, in fact, very talented or gifted in a particular area. Um, Oftentimes, internal conflict and cognitive dissonance within a person around sex relates to the difference between the observable objective reality and their perception of themselves and their skills or their talents or their body. It's women With women, it's almost 100% their body. Like, I think I've met about four or five people that haven't been, that have been like, oh, my, it's my, my blowjob skills are weak. I'm like, no, they're not. It's with women, it's almost typically um, something to do with their self-esteem, which almost always relates back to their body image, which is terrible. Um, there's got to be a solution for that, and I'm working on one. But for men, it's almost always much more heavily weighted towards skill and technical ability. I would say 60% skill, 40% body for women, for men, and probably more like 80 or 90% body and 10% skill for women in terms of what causes their concerns about whether they're good at something and bad or not. But you're so good at that can also be adapted to be more specific. You're so good at, you know, sucking cock. You're so good at fucking me. You're so good at making me feel like a man. You're so good at worshipping my body. You're so good at holding my attention. You're so good at taking me away from the world. You're so good at reminding me why I want you. All of those things are true. 
And like I've always said, you should never lie to somebody in bed. You don't need to. You can re-emphasize different things in different ways. But more than that, I don't think people truly need you to be totally 100% on board with absolutely every fantasy they have at the exact same intensity that they have it at the exact same time. And for that constantly shifting signal to be perfectly matched and mirrored by you, uh, I don't think that's what they really need. What they really want is to feel heard and seen and understood and for the possibility of it to exist at some point in the future to some degree. It's not about saying that you'll never do that. It's about saying that you're open to learning more about that, even if you never actually do, because that subcommunicates that you're not rejecting them. Oftentimes when people get very attached emotionally to a particular fetish or fantasy, it can be very difficult to communicate that to their partner because the possibility exists that their partner won't be into it. And if their partner isn't into it, then they run the risk of feeling like something that's very deep and personal about them isn't understood or accepted by their intimate partner. Sex is always best, in my opinion, when there's some degree of risk involved or perceived risk. So oftentimes people simply never talk about these things. They never air them out loud because if they never speak about them, then they're not there. It's a bit like a child closing their eyes and pretending that they're invisible because no one, they can't see anyone. That, again, is not necessarily a healthy way of looking at the world. Some of these fantasies are quite extreme, relatively speaking, in terms of you know sexual norms. But again, extreme implies a moral judgment, and I'd like to clarify that I'm not making one here about the validity of someone's sexual fantasies. My position is typically that sometimes it's better not to act on these things and instead to act them out as fantasies in your mind. So have ordinary sex, but talk about being raped in an alleyway. Um, sex is a natural trance state, so you can obtain some degree of suggestibility through well, what I'm now recognizing as a utilization of the ABS principles, absorb as much of their attention as possible, bypass their critical factor, and stimulate their unconscious. What you're doing here with the description of a fantasy is the stimulating the unconscious part. I was coaching a girl years ago, and many since, many, many since, and she was struggling to get her boyfriend's attention. Her boyfriend had some self-esteem issues and didn't feel like he was very confident in bed. And, you know, obviously... Because of that, he naturally steered away from situations where he would initiate or where she would initiate. But she was unsatisfied, and so was he. And so she asked me what she could do to fix this, what, what she could do to help her boyfriend feel better about himself. And I said, here's how you do it. Um, you learn some really basic hypnosis techniques. You go and sit on, on his lap when you're sitting on the couch. You make sure there's nothing behind you like a television that would normally draw his attention. You straddle him. You straddle him. And then you look deeply into his eyes and take off your shirt. And his mouth is at just the right height and he'll figure out what to do. But then, now that you've absorbed all of his attention through touching him and talking to him and monopolizing his vision with your breasts, you bypass his critical factor by pushing your tits into his face. And then you stimulate his unconscious by giving him positive suggestions that don't conflict with his 
low self-concept, but begin to steer him in the right direction. And I said, is there anything that you think that he needs to believe about himself? And there was a couple of things that came up and I said, well, what you want to do is soften those. Um, try to think of an example unrelated to that, but something like I'm not very good in bed might be a belief that her boyfriend might have had. So you need to find, first of all, an exception to when that's not true. So, you know, find a time when the sex was really good and think about what was done or happening or what you were both feeling then and then draw attention to that, you know. So how you defeat a belief like, uh, I don't believe I'm very good in bed is by finding an exception and coming at it from a side angle, right? You know, something like instead, the sex is so good when we're together, right? You don't address it directly because it's quite a strongly held internal belief. You come around from the side and you find an exception and you find something that overwrites it. Not necessarily the inverse of it because the inverse is often too strong of a jump for people to make, especially if it's a deeply held belief and especially if it has a lot of emotional charge around it like pretty much everything with sex does. But you come at it from an angle where it's weaker and you knock it off balance and you find an exception to it and that works very well. But yes, hypnosis. Monopolizing someone's attention with your breasts is a fantastic hypnotic technique, and I, I strongly advise all women to do this. Um, there is just something absolutely irresistible about a woman walking across the room, sitting on your lap, straddling you, pulling off her shirt, and then just talking to you. And it's not necessarily a submissive or a dominant thing, but it, it bloody well works to get your attention. So the phrase, you're so good at that, is something that is believable. It's something that they can trust because it's not necessarily specific. And I would always, again, encourage you never to lie about your partner's uh, abilities. But you also don't have to... You don't have to pander to them either. You know, it's like there are things that men like hearing cock size always comes to man to mind it's like it's always about you know tell me i'm the biggest cock you ever fucked and it's like well that might not always be true in situations like that i think it's better to in the moment do as you're told you know but you wouldn't necessarily have to initiate something like that because if you don't say it the guy's going to think well obviously if he's if she's not saying it the opposite is true and now I'm thinking about her having sex with somebody else instead of me. And, you know, I'm feeling challenged and confronted by that. And, you know, that usually brings things to a grinding halt. Imagine how a woman would feel if she asked you, you know, do these pants make her look fat? And you said, uh, let's talk about the weather instead. You know, I wouldn't necessarily consider that a lie. I guess the better approach there is never to ask questions that you don't know the answer to, but that's just classic army conditioning 101. Better instead to focus on the things they are good at. And again, there's a difference between inherent biological attributes like breast size or cock size or ass size or, well, weight isn't really an inherent biological attribute. It's something that you can modify with time. There, there are certain things that are relatively fixed about a person, and there are certain things where you can have a huge degree of malleability. But I like to compliment people on both, because why not? 
you can always find something about someone's body to enjoy. You know, you have a great smile, you have amazing hair, fantastic skin. On the other hand, I've seen beautiful girls, just gorgeous girls with terrible skin, terrible diets, and it's reflected in the terrible quality of their hair, breakouts of acne, poor skin quality. And it, it really takes a shine off a girl, you know, she loses a couple of points for that. Mostly because it's indicative of a of a deeper issue, which is usually that they don't value themselves or they don't think their body is worth valuing. And that can be a real problem. Uh, but I like to praise people for behaviors just as much as I praise them for inherent physical attributes. It's a bit like saying to someone, I love the color of your eyes, something that is biologically determined and you can't change about yourself, versus I love the way you look at me. I love the way that you feel when you're with me. I love the way that I feel when I'm with you. Those things are much more malleable. So concentrate your praise and your obvious verbal indications of enjoyment, which is just a complicated way of saying dirty talk, uh, to things both biologically determined and that are more malleable. So compliment them on both the size of their breasts and how sensitive they are. Things like that. So yes, telling someone that they're so good at that is very simple, very powerful, very effective, very empowering. And again, it draws clear, positive attention to something they're doing well, and it makes them feel successful in doing that. And that is something that you want your partner to feel. You want them to feel successful without, for many people, uh, feeling like you're talking down to them or you're baby talking to them. Well, not, not necessarily baby talking, baby talking, but some people find it demeaning when you talk about things like that. It's hard to know exactly how or why they find that demeaning. It's very much more an interpersonal thing, but there are phrases that have a higher statistical likelihood of triggering those responses, and you're so good at that is not one of them. Uh, the distinguishing factor seems to be that you're recognizing that they're capable of it at all. So, you know... You know, something like, I'm surprised at how good you are at sucking cock can carry a lot of sub-communicated negative connotations, like, I didn't think you'd be this good at it. I was thinking less of you, and now you've surprised me. It's interesting because that's never, almost almost never the way that it's actually meant to come across. But a lot of people, particularly insecure women, and really there are a lot of insecure women out there, unfortunately... There's a lot of reasons for that. I'm going to do a podcast episode on that at some point in the future because there's just there's so much both environmental and social that, that causes women to feel insecure about themselves. And I remember when I was much younger, I remember hearing about how magazines would Photoshop women models. And I thought, okay, no, not a huge deal. I kind of let it pass me by for a few years. And then I thought about it some more and I thought, hang on a minute. It's not necessarily that women are being held to impossible beauty standards. It's that women are being punished for not meeting those standards by both themselves, self-inflicted, and by, I guess, to a much, much lesser extent, broader society. The reason behind this, of course, is that if you can make people feel bad about something, you can get them to do something to make that pain go away. And especially if the pain isn't inflicted by an external party, because then the resolution is entirely within their control as well. 
So if you can show someone an image that has a very high statistical likelihood of making someone feel bad about themselves unless they're a 10, uh, they'll feel bad about it unless they have, you know, the kind of mental armor and uh, self-empowerment, sort of positive psychology, positive outlook on life that, that naturally deflects that kind of stuff. Which, of course, is something that I strongly advise, and it's the first, it's the second and the third episode in this uh in this podcast is how to develop that with your submissive and in yourself, obviously. Everyone should have one. Everyone. Everyone. No exceptions. Um, but yeah, it's not necessarily that society inflicts it on them so much as it, they inflict it on themselves. And then society, well, I, I guess I should be more accurate. I should say marketing companies inflict this on people. I think some of it's intentional, but it's mostly just to sell a product. Uh, and it's because guilt and shame work really well. You only have to look at the way that public discourse in our society has degenerated recently, in, in the last 15 years alone, to know that, you know, shame and guilt work amazingly well at controlling people's behavior. If you can make someone feel ashamed of something, they automatically look to you uh, for the resolution of that. When in fact, as Eleanor Roosevelt once pointed out very succinctly and adroitly, no one can make you feel inferior without your consent. I always like to add the word implicit or explicit to that because, you know, there are multiple levels of awareness of that. But shame and guilt work wonderfully. So what I want you to do instead is be the opposite of that. Become solar. Be a beacon of focusing on the positives that occur in bed with your partner. You know, if they're a little overweight... Don't mention it in bed, because people are very vulnerable emotionally in bed. They're very sensitive to that sort of thing. Instead, talk about other things and then bring the issue up gently outside of the bedroom and offer your assistance in some way, if you want to, if you don't want to. I mean, I've heard varying degrees of advice on this. The, the At one end of, the, of this spectrum is advice from a well-known libertarian who essentially says, uh, if a girl gets fat, ditch her, find someone new. Uh, at the other end of the spectrum is, you know, the nice guy, which is, you know, if someone has a weight problem, stop everything that you're doing for yourself in your life and make everything that you do about helping this other person with this problem that they may not even want to resolve. I tend to take a much more nuanced view of this. I, I frequently remind people that I've met 50-year-old pole dancers that are more fuckable than some 25-year-olds that I've met. So, Age for women is a huge factor. And men don't understand this nearly as much because men men improve as they age, generally speaking. Um, whereas women, unless they do something about it, tend to, not always, but tend to degrade in physical beauty over time. Um, if you want to Google SMV, market curve, uh, I think Rollo Tomasi's website's got something on it. Basically, it's a little graph. And what it does is it shows that women's biological attractiveness peaks quite early in life. And men's doesn't peak until they're about 35. But women are acutely aware of their age. Uh, and they're terrified of it, in short. Um, but it, they don't have to be. And, and that, that fear of not being as pretty not being as desirable to men, is very, very closely tied up with women that have a low self-concept or a low self-esteem. And so in my work in resolving those issues for people and helping them with those problems, I've discovered that 
it's necessary to deploy some uh, compelling rhetorical arguments. One being the I've met 50-year-olds who take care of themselves that are more fuckable than 25-year-olds. So it's that uh, distancing age from the problem because age is something that no one can fight. Age will get all of us eventually. And the very last enemy that shall be defeated is death. Although in Greek, I believe the translation is actually more accurately interpreted as entropy or the degradation of energy from a system. But conversation for another time. And uh, yeah, so women are very concerned about their age. Men also, but not as much. But women need to be armed by you or by someone else, hopefully, uh, with the rhetorical devices to not fall in a hole and give up. Uh, you know, I turned 40, therefore my life is over. No, God, no, God, not even close. Um, the often quoted feminist argument that, um, you know, 40 is the new 30 is not entirely accurate either. Uh, and that just, that just abjectly denies reality. The better way of arguing it, of, of compelling people is to say that, you know, in the absence of you taking proper care of yourself, your body will degrade over time from a certain age onwards. However, there are many, many, many advances in both the biological sciences, the physical sciences, in both diet and exercise that have made it possible for people to stay looking really, really good and functioning at very high levels of performance well into their 60s, 70s, and 80s. I have a video on my phone of an 83-year-old woman deadlifting 60 kilos for sets of three. You know, I know a couple of people my own age that can't do that. So age is a factor. It's not the only factor. And when it comes to helping women improve their self-concept, all of this tracks back to praising people in bed in the right way, in a good way. There's no right or wrong way to do it. There's effective and less effective. If you say something that directly contradicts their perception of themselves, chances are it'll bounce right off and you'll cause some cognitive dissonance and maybe slow things down a bit. Or Instead, what you want to do is come at it from a side angle. You're so good at that. Why? Because they are. You know, it could even be that they just display slightly above basic competency, but that's how you start with someone. You get them excited about, you know, spending time with you by, by feeling things and by helping them to feel things. You know, emotions are what connects us. Connection is so important, especially in an intimate relationship. Connection is often what people have intimate relationships for. But again, conversation topic for another time. So you're so good at that is a fantastic expression for communicating to someone that they're doing amazingly well at something without uh, without triggering anything that might make them feel demeaned or insulted or like, what do you mean? Of course I can suck dick well, you know. Um, it's amazing to me the number of women that identify as sluts and then you get them into bed and you're like, oh my God, you know, you suck dick like a porn star and they just get so offended by that. Some of them don't. The best ones don't. Uh, but, you know, there's often a, a weird bit of cognitive dissonance there. I think a lot of people, uh, women still have a very strong evolutionary fear of being considered loose or promiscuous. Uh, even though in modern society, female promiscuity is it's outright rewarded and encouraged. It's more of an evolutionary hangover 
socially speaking. It's not uh, something that's really relevant in modern society. Although, in fairness, the highest quality men will always want to invest their time in a quality woman. And so, while promiscuity may mean that you can bag low to medium grade guys whenever you want, high grade men will definitely fuck you, but they will be reluctant to commit to you if they feel as though their investment of time is not considered by you to be important or meaningful. So... And obviously, I encourage everyone to fuck the highest quality people they can. Not necessarily the number. That's important. It's about quality, not necessarily quantity. Although quantity is nice too. One of the things that has a huge positive effect on people's self-esteem is feeling like they are good in bed or just being good in bed. I know that was definitely a motivator for me to spend, you know, a couple of years of my teenage times mastering this stuff. I mean, I got way into it way before anyone else I knew did. I remember I uh, developed the material on the 12 different kinds of female orgasm back when I was in high school, which was a really long time ago. So you don't have to be a pro at this stuff. You don't have to read all the books. That's the whole point of this podcast. You don't have to spend five years or 10 years or 15 or 20 or 25 mastering all this stuff. What you need is the couple of things that work the best right now. And what works really well is more, and you're so good at that. So now I'll talk briefly to round out the hour uh, about some of the things that impede people's ability to express themselves. So feminists will often talk about how men need to communicate more in the bedroom or how communication is so important in the bedroom and blah, 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 blah. And it's mostly useless because people will say, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this, but they won't tell you actually how to do it. And again, this is, is part of a, a psychological warfare technique to throw people off balance. You tell people that they stink, and then you subtly suggest that they can make that problem go away by buying your product. You know, feminism doesn't present any solutions to these things. If you ask a feminist, oftentimes they'll be completely mute on the subject. How do I communicate better with someone in my bedroom? Well, you just talk to them more. How do I talk to them better? You know, what words should I use? What kind of frameworks should I wrap around our interactions? What sort of mood should both of us be in? Should we be naked or clothed? Should we have a conversation outside the bedroom about sex? Or should we only talk about sex inside? Blah, 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 blah. No answers to these questions from those sorts of people. But however, I have the answers. And I'm happy to share them. That's the whole point of this podcast. So there are three things that you need to do, well, really two things that need to happen before you can adequately express yourself in bed. Now, there is a sex toy store in Melbourne called Passion Fruits, which has a very excellent selection. And one of the things they put out on a newsletter all the time is this idea of what their mission is. And their mission is they will know that they have succeeded in their mission when everyone can talk confidently about what they enjoy in bed. And I think that's an excellent benchmark or standard, right? So how do we get there? Well, first of all, there's three things that need to happen in order for that to happen. By in order, I mean one after the other. So first of all, you have to become consciously aware of the things that you deeply desire and that you may often have been repressing an attraction to. Second of all, you have to admit those things to yourself, as in you're no longer in denial about them. 
And then thirdly, you need to find some way of communicating those, usually in written or verbal form, to your partner. Um, and honestly, that's about all you can do because you can't control whether they accept you or not. You can obviously stack things in your favor by picking the right time or, you know, starting with a gentle, like say, for example, your, your deep fantasy. Okay, let's use an example. So you're a woman and you've been having these thoughts for years, but you keep pushing them down. And the thoughts are about gang sex, sex with you and seven or eight mostly anonymous men, right? So first of all, you start off in denial about these things. You might read a story that you come to gushingly, but then you put it out of your mind. The other thing I guess it's important to mention here is that, you know, not everything, what is it sometimes Freud said, you know, young man, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. You know, sometimes things just are what they are, and there doesn't have to be a deep, you know, underlying meaning. There's no necessarily hidden wisdom in the things that you get off to. It's more about practicing communicating the things that you like with someone so you can, you know, act them out as a fantasy or if, if possible and safe and reasonable, do them in real life. If you're in denial about these things, then you'll never be able to communicate them to your partner. So you have to communicate them to yourself first. And what that looks like in practice is thinking about them and trying not to feel bad about it. Right? Now, what typically shifts the Overton window of what's acceptable to your subconscious is masturbating. So if you think about these things and masturbate, the pleasurable feelings of masturbation get tied up with the, the thoughts, the fantasies that you're having, and it becomes more acceptable over time. Now, the next level up from that is to verbalize them out loud to yourself. So to masturbate, typically, while you talk about these things out loud so that you can hear your own voice. This is something I talk about when it comes to conditioning and brainwashing because it shifts someone's concepts of what is okay and not okay. If they can hear their own voice saying these things, that's usually a huge step forward in getting someone to become comfortable with what they like. Uh, this doesn't necessarily have to be done in front of a partner, and honestly, probably works better if they do it by themselves for a while first. And that's how I typically do it. Um, although I, I vary between both methods depending on how individual the coaching is. Uh, some people I've said, you know, now that I've worked you into a state of frenzy, disconnect the phone, make sure that it's safe and appropriate, fall to your knees and, you know, and, and orgasm from all of this edging uh, while saying these things out loud to yourself. And the most important part is to remind them not to censor what they're saying. Just let the things come out that come out and don't judge themselves. And the arousal really helps with the whole not judging yourself thing. And what that typically does is it, is it kind of breaks the ice. And so once they've had a couple of times where they've communicated those things out loud to themselves, they'll be much better placed to say them to you. However, I've worked with women that are also quite shy and very sexually reserved outside of the bedroom. Although, again, paradoxically, these were some of the most expressive and demanding women in bed. Uh, I'm thinking of one particular example. And for her, what I did, and another idea that I've added to my arsenal of techniques since then, is the idea of a fetish diary. It's not a journal. It's when they write down just their fantasies. And the highest and the simplest evolution of this was a Tumblr page. And I've seen people do this, although I've never been on Tumblr and I haven't found the network very compelling at all. But a Tumblr page acts as a simply accessible visual guidebook to what someone's really, really into. 
because of its anonymity, because of the ease of, of retweeting or sharing or posting images. Um, it makes it very simple for people to describe, oh, I like this, you know, I'm into bondage. And from that, you can have the conversation because you know where to start there, right? Still, that doesn't necessarily develop techniques in specifically expressing the details of what they want. So a fetish journal is much better there. And you just have them write out the things they're into. Ideally, as they're into them. So they might have a wet dream or a fantasy, you know, jot it down in the notebook in their phone and then email it to you later on. Now, the important thing about a fetish journal is that they have to express themselves in an, a completely uncensored way. So you also can't have unrestricted access to this. I've tried that in the past where, you know, you have to, that's the problem with that kind of panopticon level of surveillance of someone is that they don't ever feel free to be truly themselves. They're oftentimes editing their responses subconsciously at the very least as to what you think or what they think you will approve of. So the best approach for this is to have a journal that is private, but they have the ability to share any of these things with you whenever they want to. Now, some dominants will say, well, you know, I don't trust my partner to share everything that's important with me, blah, blah, blah. But I'm like, yeah, okay, cool. So you're going to have a backup or a way into their journal without them realizing it. Or so you know their password or something like that. I, I don't do that. I think that's a violation of trust. I've never done that. I have had in the past advocated for keeping a journal that is fully accessible by your partner, but I don't believe that's the most effective approach now. I think the most effective approach now is to have a journal that, is private that you can share anything from if you want to and it's that act of choice that makes it meaningful it's much easier to write out your or your gang you know sex fantasy and then text that to someone and then put your phone down and, and like freeze up afterwards but it's done now you can't take it back it's relatively speaking more difficult to be able to articulate these things out verbally which is why we've been practicing uh, doing them verbally, you know, saying them out loud to yourself in a safe place to yourself, feeling okay about it, using the arousal and the masturbation to move that orgasm, the Overton window within yourself to make it more acceptable to ask for these things. And then it's just a matter of, you know, gritting your teeth, closing your eyes and spitting it out. Um, the other thing is that people are generally more open to new fantasies and to new sexual concepts when they're already aroused. So one of the best techniques I've seen for women is to lie next to your guy and give him a hand job while you talk about the fantasies that you're into. And he starts to associate that pleasure, that closeness, that intimacy. It's not like you're trying to manipulate the guy. It's more like you're trying to build a good relationship with him. And if this is something, this is something that's really important to you as a fantasy, uh, then you know, you, you want to make sure that it goes well when you introduce it. You, you want to try to reduce the chances of someone going, oh, that's just fucking weird. I will never look at you the same way. I've, I've never done that. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I not sounds like I'm a humble bragging, I'm sure. But I've had girlfriends describe everything from, uh, you know, sweet, submissive Christian girls talking about how they want to be gang raped by strangers to, you know, women tearfully admitting that their deepest fantasy is to make passionate love on a beach under a moonlight, you know, under a moonlit night. Um, and for them, that was relatively, it was very controversial for them to say. It's all relative, right? It's like there's an internal scale for that person where some things are extreme and some things aren't. 
and applying an objective scale of what is extreme and what is not outside of them to their behavior is it's not entirely accurate it's about what that person considers to be challenging to express i've had everything all the way up to uh you know, a woman admitting that she wanted to be fattened up over time, you know, that was really controversial for her to say, and obviously not very healthy to act out, but you know, the, the fantasy can be done easily, you know, just as long as they understand it's a fantasy and you keep it constrained within, you know, the bedroom and never, never begin to or allow her to, to act out on those things in real life. I've also had women that were, you know, it's one particularly good example of a woman that wanted to be fucked up the ass while she was partially drowned in a toilet. You know, that was controversial for her. That was hard for her to say. You know, obviously I don't have a lot of experience with guys admitting their deep dark fantasies to me, uh, being straight and all that, but I'm sure the emotional turmoil is very similar and I cannot see any reason why a similar process would not work for men. You know, writing things down. Sending photographs is good, but it's a bit like training wheels. It's good to start with, but you want to move to the point where they can have open, honest, genuine... Comp what you want to do is you want to move to like the passion fruits kind of level of, of proficiency where you can just have an open conversation about the things you like in bed um, and feel aroused by it, but not necessarily ashamed so much. I have a lot more experience in uh, helping women deal with shame and guilt well, I still have a lot of experience helping guys deal with shame and guilt as well. So, you know, that's neither here nor there. But it's shame and guilt is something that is very dangerous. It's very toxic for people to feel. And I, I never encourage anyone to feel ashamed of or guilty of these, of thinking these things, acting them out. Some of these fantasies involve hurting other people or hurting animals or hurting, you know, themselves. I, I never encourage them to act these things out if they're harmful to people. But that's the thing, you don't have to. And most of the time, like the actual reality of it is nowhere near as fun as the actual fantasy. Because in fantasy, everything's perfect. In trance, everything is perfect. No one, you know, texts that they're not coming to the gangbang tonight because their car broke down, you know? Condoms don't slip off or break. Uh, every guy comes exactly when they're supposed to come. You know, you don't come until you're supposed to come. Um, there's so many different elements that can go quote unquote wrong um, or less than perfectly in real life that you can totally absolve through the use of trance or suggestion while you're fucking them, you know? So there oftentimes the fantasy is better than the reality, but it's not about that. It's about building the proficiency where they can express themselves to you fluidly and easily and naturally and without guilt and shame. Because what this does is it builds tremendous sense of trust, you know, between two people. I had one girl, uh, you know, admit that she'd always been very curious about coprophilia. And I remember quite distinctly not feeling bothered by that at all. Um, I remember it so distinctly because I was certain that I was supposed to, you know, if I was applying a moral standard to it, you know, obviously that's, you know, an immoral behavior and, and degenerate or whatever, but... I genuinely felt nothing but a deeper sense of trust with her that she would have the courage to talk to me about something that was obviously so personal and so, and, and in admitting it, made herself tremendously vulnerable to me. 
I do think it's the best way to handle that situation. You know, it's like, it, this is obviously something that's very challenging for someone to admit. And like it was for all those other people with their various, you know, fetishes and kinks and interests and fantasies, they're challenging sometimes. And that's kind of where the rubber meets the road when it comes to this stuff, because there's things, especially in mainstream kink, uh, that are very simple to admit to liking, you know, if you admit that you're really into rope bondage. But, you know, like rope bondage and flogging and the kind of basic level stuff, like a little bit of choking and some rough sex, no one's really going to get, you know, super pissed off about that sort of stuff. But, you know, things like blood play or coprophilia or, you know, golden showers or things that other people have a moral judgment on or are more likely to have a moral judgment on tend to be quite confronting for kink people. Fun side note, kink people are the most intolerant and judgmental group of people I have ever encountered in my entire life. And I'll be covering that more in a future podcast episode. But you don't have to, and this is an important part. So, you know, if you're taking notes, underline this part. You don't have to have the approval of random strangers to do things that you enjoy. Your sexual activities are not less valid because they are not witnessed by other people. Your sexual activities and the things that you enjoy are not less meaningful to you because you don't have 20 random strangers cheering you on. You are enough. What you want is enough, and it is enough that you want it. You don't have to act it out in real life. As I've said numerous times, I feel that bears repeating because oftentimes people have this compulsion that, that every fantasy, no matter how extreme they have, should be acted out in real life. You don't have to. You can have a fantasy. You can masturbate while you think about it. You know, you can edge alone in your room uh, while you think about six guys in a dark alleyway. You don't ever have to actually do those things. And you shouldn't ever feel guilt or shame for wanting those things. Acting on them may not always be the best idea, and, and sometimes acting on them isn't the best idea, oftentimes. But having that fantasy is not something that you should feel ashamed of. Uh, Igor talks about this particularly, well, not in a sexual context, but in a, uh, you know, where attention goes, energy flows. And the more that you feel bad about this stuff, the more importance it takes on in your mind. And that's not what you want it to do. You want to be a rounded person. You want to have a great sex life and a great relationship and a great set of friends and a good job and a house that you love living in. You don't want to be you know, so myopically focused in one area of your life, sexual, that everything else suffers as a result. And you don't have to, you know, you can have these fantasies and you can act them out as fantasies inside the safety and privacy of your own head. But I would strongly encourage people to share uh, their deeper thoughts with their partner. And that's how you do it. And if you're a trainer, that's how you encourage your partner to do it. You tell them to think about these things inside the safety and privacy of their own head while they masturbate. And then you tell them to, you know, articulate them out loud while they're in a submissive position and say whatever comes into their head. Do this three or four times until they become comfortable with it. If you want to have them, I've had them write about these things, but oftentimes you're not really going for that level of self-reflection just yet. It's more to do with the fact that you're just lubricating the pipeline for this. Um, oftentimes, the first fantasies that come out will be the strongest ones that they've held the longest. Not always, but most times. And 
that's worth making a mental note of and coming back to later on. But the process is the part that's important. It's about making them comfortable saying these things out loud and then saying them out loud. So saying them out loud to themselves to complete my summary, saying them out loud to themselves in the privacy of their own you know, bedroom when no one's around to talk to them or to judge them and then getting comfortable with not judging themselves, feeling safe about it, and then beginning to share a gentler, uh, I guess kind of sanitized version of that with you. So, you know, you don't have to hear about their vicious, violent, um, semi-non-consensual 12-man, one-woman rape scene right off the bat. You know, start talking about well, I guess if you want to introduce your partner to something like that, that you're worried they might have a problem with, I would generally start by doing something like introducing a gentle version of it. Like, I really like the idea of you, my beloved partner, having amazing sex with me while two of your friends watch. And your partner will usually go, which friends? Because he'll be thinking about it as a jealousy thing. And you'll say, oh, I can't see their faces. It doesn't really matter. I'm not relating them to specific people. It's just the idea of having multiple guys there that turns me on. Have a couple of good experiences with that and then, you know, introduce more elements of it, change the location, change the number of guys. Um, maybe you don't have your partner there, but, you know, it's it's like it's nice. It's, it's nice to feel included and there's often a way that you can work your partner into the fantasy in a way that's less challenging for them than if they were having to take part in it in, with you in real life. Like, okay, let's try a hypothetical here. Say, for example, I am uncomfortable with the idea of organizing uh, a gangbang. <clears throat> I'm not. But let's say hypothetically I am. I'm in a monogamous relationship with a girlfriend, and she's had this fantasy about it for years. And so, you know, she could bring it up off the bat, and I'd be like, oh my god, I'm so, you know, uncomfortable with this and stuff. And, but if I was a girl, this is how I'd do it. I would start talking about the idea of, like, multiple guys watching while you know, my partner fucks me and not taking part, but just watching. And then sometimes it'd be like, he gets to go first and then, you know, his friends or the two strangers, you know, they go next. Cause it's like a dominance thing, right? You know, the, the alpha fucks first, the, the lion always eats first. And it's a way about, it's a way of leading him through that process without challenging him or his perception of himself in that relationship. Here's a better example. Uh, say you want to introduce another woman into the bedroom, right? So how I would do this is you have sex with your girlfriend and you talk about the idea of like, say multiple guys watching, right? Or a guy and a girl having sex on the bed next to them, you know, strangers that you met in a, in a hotel bar. And then you gradually work her up to the idea of like another woman watching and masturbating while she's claimed by you. And then you talk about, you know, that other woman, like, having you after she's had you. So she's the alpha. You know, she gets to have you first. And it's like, it's all of this stuff is mostly about not tripping someone's jealousy or their self-concept and associating good feelings to these positive sexual experiences in fantasy. The regardless of whether you ever act any of these things out in real life, and like I've mentioned, and, you know, from personal experience... The fantasy of it is often better than the reality of it. The reality of it is messy and complex and, and beautiful and wonderful, but sometimes the fantasy is better. So, so I'll just go back through and summarize everything we've covered before we wrap up. And so basically there's two phrases that 
are amazing in bed more and you're so good at that use these all the time more is an excellent reinforcer and you're so good at that you know communicates success and pride and also gives them the opportunity to talk about something that they feel like they're good at um, be positive and uplifting with your partner in bed don't focus on their weight if that's a huge problem then deal with it outside of the bedroom uh, i did mention that there's a libertarian guy i think i went back through that in enough detail basically his approach was like if she gets fat ditch her um, Roosh V talks about how if a woman is putting on weight and you're in a relationship with her, you know, basically you have a conversation with her at the start of the relationship, which is that, you know, you're dating her at the current weight. And honestly, I think this is pretty close to the ideal, um, approach for a monogamous couple is, you know, when you start a relationship with the girl, you say, look, I'm dating you at your current weight. And I expect that that weight will be maintained. I, as the guy will always maintain this weight because I will not become fat. I will get more athletic, I will go to the gym, I will take care of myself, and I expect you to maintain the level of general physical proportion that you have now. And if it goes a couple of kilos over that, then you need to start talking to her about, you know, upping those standards in a positive and empowering way. Unfortunately, the reality is, as a man these days, it's women are very sensitive about their weight in particular, and it's so intricately entangled that with their self-concept that it's often difficult for them to fix it by themselves and it's almost impossible for you as their intimate partner to fix it um like anything and i'll talk about this more in future episodes you have to make someone want to fix these things to change these things before they actually will so that can be a complex and confronting issue is women's weight gain or men's weight gain i'm not really concerned with men's weight gain because i i don't date dudes but if you have a standard for someone, you should be willing to meet that standard yourself. So if your standard is, I, you know, you get to go up and down a couple of kilos, but you cannot get fat, then I would hold myself to the same exact standard. I would keep working out. I would work out harder knowing that that other person has committed to following that rule. And it's so important because, you know, it's not just that it affects the physical sexual aspects of a relationship. It's that it affects a woman's self-esteem. A woman that doesn't like herself, a woman that doesn't love herself is going to feel like a failure more often. She's going to find reasons, at least subconsciously, to feel bad about things. And then you can very quickly become her caretaker and not her loving boyfriend. So if you love somebody, don't allow them to destroy their body. Don't allow them to get fat. Don't allow them to hate themselves. Encourage them to love themselves and to work on their self-worth and there's a lot of content in those two podcast episodes the second and the third in this series around helping yourself first of all develop an empowering positive psychology and working on your subconscious and reinforcing it with concepts of self-worth and winning as well as developing conflict resolution tools like uh, if or yet or uh, what was that other one i was talking about it the other day with someone uh you know what happened and what does it mean? Those are very powerful conscious tools to work through issues, as well as the idea of like keeping a journal or a, a resilience journal, that kind of thing. So yeah, self-esteem is really important because self-esteem directly affects the kind of sex that you're able to have with that person. If they don't feel like they're competent or capable or beautiful, then there's going to be a lot of things holding them back. You can do some things to help them with that, but mostly you need to work on yourself, on and specifically on helping them and yourself to 
you know, again, all of this stuff is like so applicable to dominance and trainers and, and male partners as well, you know. There are probably fantasies that guys are a little uncomfortable with admitting to themselves. Admit them to yourself in the privacy of your own mind while you masturbate. Then talk about them out loud and then move from that to talking about them with a partner. Understand, of course, that your partner doesn't have to like those things. You don't necessarily win when you get that fantasy fulfilled. You win when you are able to communicate it to your partner out loud. You know, it doesn't really matter how they respond to it. It's you've won because you're working on yourself. You're developing your fluency and your proficiency in expressing what you want to people that are worthy of your trust and that you're attracted to and in a relationship with. So how I would deal with a girl that got fat in a relationship is I would gently encourage her, if she put a couple of kilos on, I would gently encourage her to go to the gym. I would honestly never encourage her not to go to the gym. Um, athleticism is something that I, I filter for now in partnerships because it's such a leading indicator of so many other things like high self-esteem and good self-love and strong relationships with her family. It's It's hard. It's actually impossible, I should say for someone to feel more love from someone else than they f they're they capable of feeling for themselves. So, you know, if someone is massively overweight and doesn't take care of their body and, or their nutrition or their diet, that's usually a pretty good indicator that they don't love themselves very much, which will make it hard for you to love them. They simply won't let you. They won't be able to receive it. They'll deny it, rationalize around it and ultimately sabotage a good part of the joy that you would be able to experience together if their self-concept was higher. So which is why I put so much effort into developing those first three podcast episodes. Well, specifically the second and the third one. But as always, work on yourself first. Solve these problems in yourself first and then teach them to somebody else. You know, the, the four stages model that I haven't spoken about yet in a podcast episode is... So the four stages model that I haven't talked about yet in a podcast which I have developed is very, very, you know, very briefly. Level zero is you're not aware of it. Level one is you're aware of it, but you can't do it. Level two is you're aware of it, and now you can do it consistently. Level three is you can teach it to someone else. So take all the tools that I've taught you in this podcast episode and then use them on yourself. Work on your ability to express yourself. Say more in bed. Tell someone frequently that they're really good at that. Uh use them and then teach them how to use them. And I guess, you know, more specifically, build your fluency by talking about the things that you like with your partner. And I guess, you know, toning it down a little bit at the start, if it's quite an extreme fantasy, you start with a gentle version of it. But I think you've probably got enough rambling from me to pick up the, uh, pick up the threads and run with it. So thank you for listening. I genuinely love having an audience and it's wonderful to teach so many people. I get emails from people every week telling me how the podcast episode, you know, this one or that one has changed their life or changed their relationship. So feel free to email me at originalmindkink at pm.me. It's a ProtonMail address. So originalmindkink at protonmail.com also works. Or right, we'll check out the website at mindkink.net. So, further notes. One of the downsides of using the word more as a reinforcer is that it often communicates to your subject not just that they're doing the right thing, 
but what you actually want them to do is just more of the thing they're doing. Now, sometimes that can be accurate, and other times that can be inaccurate. So, I guess use your best judgment as to what you would like to use as your reinforcer. For many people, it's yes, said in an emphatic and pleasurable tone. More works very well as an informal reinforcer. For a formal reinforcer, there may be better options.